Presbyterian disaster assistance is one of the best things our denomination does. They, uh, um, they're not always the first people on the ground, though, because we have churches in most parts of the world, they tend to be there uh, through those congregations. But they are, um, they stay longer than most. The Red Cross comes and goes pretty uh, quickly, actually, in most disaster situations. Uh, Presbyterian disaster assistance stays for a long time. I experienced it firsthand um, in Thousand Oaks, where I pastored a congregation, uh, and we had two things happen. We had, and they both happened within 24 hours of each other. We had some devastating fires in, in the uh, winter of 2018, if you'll remember, and we had a mass shooting in our town. And uh, there were representatives from both groups in, in PDA that came and walked alongside us in that, and they stayed for a long time. And the trauma from the shooting actually was the thing that got pushed to, the, to every, the back of everybody's mind because the fires were so immediate and so big and so many people lost homes that that dwarfed, felt like it dwarfed, the trauma that happened in the shooting. And so we were just really appreciative. So whatever you can do, um, I just echo what, what uh, Mandy shared with you about the Hurricane Ida victims and people suffering in that, that your dollar actually goes right directly to those folks and know that as part of their work. Um, so you're going to learn about me as I preach and teach and we do other things and we get together and do some stuff online and some stuff in person. And I hope that uh, you'll take time. This week, I realized that uh, last week, I um, didn't walk out to the patio. I apologize. I, uh, what I heard in service was, when we're done, y'all just go home. And uh, I thought, well, okay. Uh, so I stood and listened to the band and talked to a few people in here. But I will go outside this week and hopefully say hi to many of you and get to at least get started in that. But at least on Zoom, your name was underneath your face and you didn't have a mask on on Zoom. So I, we'll have to figure out how to do that. You might have to wear a little nameplate underneath your, um, around your neck or something. But uh, it's, it's, uh, I look forward to the opportunity. I'm, I'm a true extrovert, and if the chance of meeting somebody comes along, I'm all in on that one. And uh, Zoom is, uh, COVID's been really hard on extroverts um, and hard on introverts as well, but uh, many of us lost the opportunity to be around people. We're going to be looking at First Peter for the next few weeks up until Advent. And Advent, uh, be doing a series on uh, the uh, prologue of John of that gospel. And then it's been a while since I preached the gospel of John, so I'm going to resurrect uh, uh, that in my own life and pay attention to it. And then from my habit is to preach the gospel from Advent to Easter. And so we're going to uh, anchor ourselves in the gospel of John from uh, January on till Easter in April, I assume. I think, I think the 31st is uh, Palm Sunday, something like that. Uh, but but uh, uh, first Peter, uh, one of the things I like to do is when the church starts gathering back in the fall, if people have been gone or summer and all that, is talk about the church. Who are we? And, and reorient that. And I know as a, 
coming on as your transitional pastor, it's good for us to think again, to take a little bit of time to consider who we are as church and what is that calling and, and getting clear in that. We'll do some things together to get clear about what God has done in the past here. And we'll spend time with that and we'll talk about what is, how does that impact going forward. Um, but First Peter is uh, a, uh, it's a letter from Peter to the followers of Jesus who have been dispersed. And uh, they've been scattered all over uh, Asia Minor. And it's um, a letter that some people have latched on to, Will Willimon and Stanley Hauervoss at Duke, talking about what is it like to live as resident aliens? Because that's what Peter's talking about to these people. How, does it, how are you God's missionary people when you're not at home? So that's where we start. Hear God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Pray with me. God, may the words that appear in our heads and come out of my own mouth move from our mouths to our hearts to our hands. In Jesus' name. Amen. For the early followers of Jesus, everything had changed. Everything had changed. I can't emphasize that enough. It was nothing like they'd experienced before. Not in any way. They were displaced, they were disoriented, and they were disempowered. They were uprooted from home and family, and tradition, and every other thing you can imagine that was familiar. They, they moved into a place where, where the food was different. They didn't even have a favorite restaurant to go to. They, they couldn't locate themselves in the community. They find themselves in a foreign land of foreign people. I've been reading a book by um, James K. A. Smith, a theologian, author, and he wrote a little book called the, the, um, On the Road with St. Augustine. You might say Augustine, but uh, I say Augustine. 
So, um, and, and this is what he writes about Augustine. Augustine grew up in, in northern Africa and sojourned all over the Mediterranean world in the third century. And he, uh, he writes this. He says, for Augustine, this isn't the situa- just the situation of being an expat. How many of you have ever been an expat? You've lived in another country. Ron, you guys have. And, uh, and you're a U.S. citizen, but you've lived in another place. When I've been overseas in, in, uh, in, in Kenya or um, other parts of Africa, or I've been in the U.K. or any other part of the world that I've traveled in, I meet expats all the time, people that are no longer living in their own country. And, and Augustine is not living in his own place in northern Africa. And... It, Smith writes this, for Augustine, this isn't just the situation of the expat. It's the human condition, this feeling of exile. We sojourners navigating our not-at-homeness and our built-in hunger for a home, code-switching between comfort here in the world and longing to be anywhere but here, made for another world, but immersed in this one, variously asking, are we there yet, and do we have to go? I love that little moment. I mean, if that describes so well what I think we've been experiencing in the last several, a couple of years. This sense of, do we, are we there yet? Have we arrived wherever it is this The turmoil of our culture has brought us a world pandemic, and have we arrived anywhere yet? And do we have to go there? Can't we just stay where we are? This betweenness, as Augustine imagines it, is a dynamic space of movement. I am pulled in two different directions, and the question is, how I'll navigate this sense that I find myself here, thrown here, as the philosopher Heidegger would say, but with an inexplicable longing for somewhere else. I'm thrown in here, but I have this underlying longing for somewhere else. I'm an alien here, even though here is the only place I've ever lived. Does that resonate at all with you? Have you felt like that in the last couple years? That I'm an alien here, and yet here is the only place I've ever lived. But I don't feel like I know it anymore. I'm, I'm not on solid footing anymore. Culturally, my faith, a whole lot of things have shifted and the ground has moved, and I find myself in this in-between. I think that's a good description of, of the time. But something more than that has happened as well. There's that in-betweenness, that longing for a place to be even though um, we've never been there. But something else happened. What what Augustine and, and Smith and I think our text is saying that these exiles that are in the dispersion of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia 
that are all out there, they're all over the map, that there's been a radical disorientation they've gone through. But there's also a radical orientation that's going on. There's been a radical discontinuity with things of the past. But there's a radical continuity that's going on at the same time. And both of these things are happening in us. There's a new perspective, a new antidote, a new mission being formed and shaped in the people of God. It's an accompanied life by the God who is calling them in Jesus Christ. My life verse comes out of Colossians. Uh, not everybody has one of these things, but, and I, I didn't go looking for one, but I have gone back to this passage for the last 50 years of my Christian life. It's Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. As therefore you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So as you came, Craig, as you came to faith, I want you to live with that same trust, that same believing, that same like, wow, that happened so long ago when I was 15. And I want you to live that way now and be thankful. My ideas aren't the same. My view of God's not the same. I grew up, I experienced a heck of a lot of stuff. I'm a very different person than I was at 15 with a different set of, of priorities and insights. But the thing that hasn't changed is this wow factor of Jesus being forever present right there. That God wants to be right there with you and with me. Like the early followers of Jesus, we're rooted in that reality. It's not in a static set of rules and ideas. It's not a static beginning that we keep trying to get back to. We're not trying to get back to some magical moment in our lives. That magical moment is present right here, right now. It's the person of Jesus. It doesn't, that doesn't change. But there's a dynamic reality that is changing of what God is doing here and now. We hear about it in the morning when we talk about action steps we can take. Ten years ago, we didn't think of those as action steps, perhaps. But now we do. Why? Because context has shifted. And the ground's moved. And we're rooted in Jesus. And Jesus is leading the way out into the world. So what do we do? Do we stand firm and stay home? Or do we step out in faith? That's what God's asking. The good news of the resurrection, our text says, gives us everything to live for. It says in our text, what? By his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been given a living hope 
a way of going forward. This is not static information. This isn't just settled theology. We've been given a living, breathing hope that we're expected to live into. A new starting point, a do-over, a fresh start, a clean slate. Humanity has been given an opportunity to change the way it works. Not just individually, but collectively. Everything's been given a new start. I, uh, one of my favorite books is a book by Ann Tyler. I don't know if you've read Ann Tyler's work. Um, a great author, and if you haven't read her stuff, do it, because it's really uh, insightful. But she wrote a book many years ago called St. Maybe. And uh, I've been rereading it a little bit in preparation for today. And one of the things that... that uh, as she talks about in the book, is one of the, the characters is a young man who's, uh, who's done something he wants forgiveness for. And he happens to go to, by random to this church and meets the pastor. And um, he wants to be forgiven, and, and the exchange is too good for me to, uh, to ruin it for you. But the gist of it goes like this. Um, he, he, the church is called the Church of the Second Chance. And this young man is looking for some way to be forgiven, but he's not looking really for a second chance. And the pastor ends up pressing him and saying, you know, you can't just be forgiven like that and then not change the way you are. You've got to be willing to change. I've had to struggle with theology of it. But it's a great story. But the chance not just to get it right, but to keep moving towards a life well-lived in Jesus. That that's what the second chance is. The check, second chance is for a turning. You know, in, in the, uh, when, when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, the, uh, um, there were um, uh, lots of things written about it, but the, the, the Germans had a term for what happened uh, in 1989. It was called Divenda, uh, W-E-N-D-E. And what it means in German is the turning. And they described what was happening in 1989 as this process of turning. Turning away from socialism and communism in that world and facing a new direction. And 1989 happened and it was just part of the turning. It hadn't been completed yet. I don't know if it has yet or not. It'd be interesting to talk to my German friends about that. But this idea that it's a turning, that, that this new beginning, this new birth, is about where you're going to turn to and who you're going to end up facing. You've been given a chance to face Jesus. And to go with Jesus where Jesus is asking you to go and to follow. And you've been given a second chance not to start it and get it right, but to face the direction that God intends you to go. And you may turn away from that time and time and time again in your life. And what really matters is that you will turn and face Jesus. Second chance. Keep moving towards living the life we've been given, full of grace and truth.
Our text calls us to this living hope. That's what it says. You've been given this living hope. Salvation isn't just for us as individuals. It's not just punching your ticket to heaven. It's not anything like that. It's not individualistic, though individuals benefit. And it's not merely for a future. It's intended to be a reconciling work here and now for the benefit of the world. Salvation for us is not for ourselves alone, as I said last week, but it's for the world. If it stays closed up in us, we have to rethink whether or not we've truly been affected by the gospel. If it ends up being for my neighbor, it's different. It's not you get your heart's desire after you die. It's a living hope that says God will give you the desires of your heart in this life. It's a down payment on the way things will be forever. And we don't do it by ourselves. Jesus accompanies us. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Christianity believes that the world has a future that there's a goal, that there's actually the culmination of history as we know it, and that history has a point and a purpose, and we get to be players in that. We get to be people God uses to get all of creation towards his goal, toward God's goal. We get to do that. God writes the story. God's the author. You know, we, we keep talking about the, the, person, the person who writes the history makes the history. You've heard that before. Well, the person that writes the history is God. God's the author of the story we find ourselves in. So how are we to think of ourselves in this story? I told you, you you're going to have to suffer with me through my C.S. Lewis stuff. Um, and so this morning I want to share with you one of my favorite passages out of a sermon that's, that Lewis preached during World War II. Um, it was at St. Mary's uh, College in Oxford. Um, I've had the privilege of being in that church on a few occasions. And, and, uh, and Lewis would preach to uh, uh, huge audiences. So the church on that night was just jammed with people and people were, the windows were open and people were hanging out the windows and looking in the windows. And, and he was a re really popular speaker as well as writer during that time. And he talked on that night about glory, what it was and what it wasn't. And when he talks about glory, he talks about notice, that God notices you, that you can, that that's a kind of glory, that uh, that when someone pays attention, you know, I want, to, I want my teachers to pay attention. I want to be noticed by my parents for not just bad things, but other things. I want to be paid attention to. As an aside, I'm really grateful for our future son-in-law. He notices our daughter and pays attention to her feelings. And I'm so pleased with that. I can't pay enough money for it. 
and so pleased for her. But in a sense, she basks in that glory of being noticed. She lights up. And so God notices us. And Lewis writes this. He says, so it may be possible for us to think too much of our own potential glory. It is hardly possible for you and me to think too often or too deeply about the glory of our neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature that if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror that you only meet if ever in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations, writes Lewis. It is with the awe, it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. God is on the side of people. We need to learn to take the other's worldview as seriously as they do, no matter who it is. People that we disagree with, we need to take their worldview as seriously as they take their own. It's the only way we can begin to show that we respect the fact that they are God's people. Everyone in this room, regardless of your politics, regardless of your theological positions, regardless of what you do for a living, what you've done in the past, or anything else, are people God loves. Now, God may not love all that you do or all you think or all that you say, but God loves you. And it would be disingenuous of me, a follower of Jesus, to not attempt to do the same thing. God is inside of people, all people. Our inheritance is an eternal notice by God. Not only for ourselves, but for our neighbors as well. Will we be generous people with this truth? 
Or will we be like we've seen so many people when they get an inheritance? How many of you have been in a family and, and uh, parents have died and there's something left to the family? Um, my, my dad and mom died, not much was left. We, we didn't uh, experience that passing on generational wealth. Um, but there were mementos and things that were valuable. And it was interesting um, to watch how we talked about them and thought about them. Oh, no, no, you take it. Really? No, 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 you have it. And then, you know, years later to hear them gripe about the fact that you actually took it. And uh, they were a little disingenuous, right? You've been in that situation. I've watched families fight almost murderously over, each, over inheritance. You know, we've, we've watched this time and again as though that was what is what's most important, what you keep and what you get. Will we be family members who fight over the estate about holding on to something we think so valuable about being the church or about being Christians or whatever that we aren't able to let go of it and embrace something new? You realize in eternity there will not be a church. Do you know that? There's not a church anywhere in the Bible in eternity. You realize there won't be any politics left in eternity. You realize that there won't be any uh, privilege left. You realize, don't you, that the goal of eternity is to bring all the world together as one people. You know that's the goal, right? And your job right now is to work towards that goal in the here and now and to give people a sign and foretaste of what's to come. That's what it means to be God's missionary people. To give the world a sign, a foretaste, a little tiny bit of something that it longs for and hungers for and to give it to them so they want more. We are to actually live Jesus. A living hope, not a static past. Pray with me. God, we don't know how to navigate all this stuff. Navigating the discontinuity and radical uh, interruptions that we've experienced. And God, we've, we've done it. Um, we don't know if we've done it well or not. Um, that is, remains to be seen. God, we also don't know how to embrace the continuity. Uh, sometimes we live as though you don't exist, and so we live without you. We're not living you, Jesus. And so we pray that in these days to come, this is the time for the second chance, for us to embrace you and to be embraced by you and walk forward together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.